I wanted to talk about equanimity this evening. And I'm so glad that I did want to because I was on the bridge coming over from San Francisco for almost one and a half hours. (laughs) And it was such a good support to know that I could not let my mind go into reactivity because... I was going to talk about equanimity. (laughs) And it was... um, So I wanted to begin actually with uh, um, two stories that, or experiences that were a teaching for me around equanimity, and they're both around our bodies and health. And one was the support group that I was part of for a while after I had back surgery, and the prognosis I had after my back surgery wasn't very good. And so I was in the support group where most people were in wheelchairs. And a young man who had recently been shot and um, was in a wheelchair was very defended and angry. And so those that had been in the support group for a while um, decided to go around in a circle and share why they were in wheelchairs or what had happened. It was um, 90% men, and there was just um, one woman apart from myself. And this man, one of the men, said... While I was in a car accident in my 20s, he probably was in his late 30s, Um, I was in a car accident and I came to consciousness lying in the middle of the road and realized that I couldn't feel my legs. And in that moment, I knew that I was going to begin a totally different life. I didn't feel sad, and I didn't feel angry or reactive. I just knew that I was going to learn different things and live differently. And I was so moved by that, that profound opening. And something very similar happened with my teacher, Ruth Dennison, we were building an extension into the uh, of the center, which is it's a very small center in the desert in Joshua Tree, and the floor was concrete, and she was standing on a bench, reaching out to change a bulb um, in a light socket, and the bench tipped, and she fell onto the concrete floor, 
And she was in so much pain that she knew she had badly broken a number of bones. She was um, brought up in Germany and she had an uncle, she said. And as she came to um, consciousness, the image that came to her was her uncle who had also broken his hip and a number of bones and who had ended up in a wheelchair. And she acknowledged that this might be true for her as well, that this might be the end of her capacity to walk. And she said as she acknowledged that, she saw in her mind this deep acceptance that she too was now going to end um, in a wheelchair, was going to live in a wheelchair. Equanimity is this capacity that we have inside of our hearts to open to whatever is given to us. It is this um, um, allowing of how it is without preference or judgment. So Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about about it as the middleness of how we live. That is the middleness of not being moved by great pleasure into desire or craving or clinging. The middleness that holds through in understanding that really the the key of our life is about relationship and not what it is we're relating to. So whether we're walking or not walking, and this is the vision, whether we're walking or not walking, that isn't where our happiness lies. Our happiness lies in our relationship to whether we're walking or not walking. And what these teachings say is that Each one of us has the capacity to heal whatever is needed in order to be open to what life brings us. So I want to share just one other story in this um, um, uh, expression of equanimity. And that is, my first spiritual teacher was Evelyn Eaton, a part indigenous pipe carrier, indigenous woman that um, lived in Lone Pine, California. She died in the mid-90s. And this, is, this was at a Native American Indian medicine wheel gathering, and it was the first time I met her, actually. she I thought it was some kind of herbal gathering, and because I have trained initially in landscape gardening, I thought, oh, they'll have some nice herbs there. But it ended up being totally different. So my partner and I were wandering around, and we came across the circle. And there was this kind of strange-looking woman, because she was wearing a twin set with pearls and a plaid skirt, so very traditional clothing, and had this pipe. And there was 
really quite an incredible energy in both how she was holding her pipe. Um, I don't know if you've been in a pipe ceremony, but you draw on the smoke and then you blow it in blessings for the directions before you continue with your ceremony. And she was blowing the smoke and the smoke was in perfect round bubbles of smoke. And there was an amazing energy, so we stopped. And just soon after we stopped, this woman sort of stumbled into the circle and went onto her knees in front of Evelyn and said, I want to die. I want to die. I can't go on living anymore. And she had a very distorted face. There were folds of skin over her eyebrows and folds of skin over her cheeks. And her, her, her whole body was quite distorted. I forget the name of the disease, but it was um, an, um, some disease. And um, there was this incredible silence in the circle. And Evelyn turned the pipe around and, and touched her shoulders and said, each one of us is given a path of healing. And that path is never greater than our capacity to hold what we're given with love, with clarity, with compassion, and with equanimity. And there was something about how she said that. And I could feel this woman find from that invitation, even if it was just for that moment, that connection of, oh, whatever I'm given, I have the capacity to relate to with love in a way in which I'm not suffering. I have the capacity to relate with equanimity. The Buddha says that this capacity is living inside of us. And it isn't something that we have to um, get from another master or a teacher or even, even a practice, though a practice cultivates it or can cultivate it, it is something that's living inside of us and that one of the practices that most brings this quality into being is our contemplation of it and inclining the mind towards it. So let me give you the traditional, having um, talked talked about some of, of uh, stories around it, the traditional definition, which um, um, I read in the Vasudhimaga, which is one of the older texts. It's um, equ Equanimity is seen as neutrality towards beings. Its function is to see equality, and it is manifested as the quieting of resentment and desire. When it's highly developed, it becomes unshakable. It is, um, it is like a mountain, that's the simile given, 
that is not moved by any circumstances. So when I was thinking about that, a mountain not moved by any circumstances, the other image that came to me, because maybe because I just was in a meeting with some ministers, we're going to lead an interfaith day. And so they were talking about the Holy Trinity and things that actually I'm not that educated about. And um, so... Uh, they also mentioned Jesus. And I had the image of Jesus in deep equanimity. That's what the pictures are when we see Jesus on the cross as someone who even then in that situation is was steeped like a mountain, unmoved by resentment or desire or aversion or craving held in the deepest equanimity of allowing and acceptance and love. Jesus, the Buddha, Ansung Suki, another person who was in house arrest for I think 20 years or many, many, many years, who never ever spoke negatively about the hunter who had kept her um, in in that kind of imprisonment, that kind of mind that is moved to continue to work with whatever it is we need to work with so that we can come to that acceptance. So I'm talking about the stories and the ways that I am because often, and I know that this is true for myself, I lose that vision. I lose the vision of my capacity and I lose the vision of equanimity. And um, a good story of that is the insomnia that I've worked with my whole life, partly because of um, the early trauma that I experienced as a child. And so if there's anything that happens in my life that is slightly difficult for me, the first thing that goes is my sleep. And when I say, like, my sleep goes, I mean, like, and I experienced this last night, nothing. I didn't sleep the whole night. I was up the whole night. And when that used to happen, I would be in such deep suffering. I'd be like, I've got to fly somewhere. I've got to give a Dharma talk. I've got to drive somewhere. I've got to, you know, just even do the things of our lives. I know that we all hold multiple things and it takes a lot of energy to do that. And I would be frantic. I would be in so much suffering around it. And it was the suffering that actually challenged me to find a path. And that's what the Buddha says about all the beautiful qualities of mind and the actual practice of liberation, which is that it's our finally acknowledging and not resisting the suffering that we're experiencing in our lives that brings us to the path and says, how do I find a way? How do I find a way? Because I can't keep doing this. This is, it just isn't working. And I tried, you know, I tried everything. I tried sleeping pills and this thing and that thing and everything.
And then it just came to me, this is one of the things that I get to work with in my life. It's one of the things. I'm 62, and there hasn't been any real improvement in the number of nights I get to sleep and the number of nights I don't. But what has incredibly improved, and I thought about this when I thought, well, where have I found equanimity in my life? And it has been, this has been one of the big things, is my relationship to not sleeping. And that there is so much more acceptance and ease around it. Like, this is how it is, Arena. And the one incredible discipline that I have dedicated myself to, and that is if I get into bed and I can't sleep, my commitment is I get out of bed. I get out of bed and I practice. And I do walking meditation because that's much easier for me. And so I do lifting, placing, shifting. Arena, do you know you are placing? Lifting, placing, shifting. And I do it for hours. And often, more times than not, I actually end up in appreciation that I haven't slept. It doesn't always last for a long time, but it does come up because I would never practice walking meditation if I was an insomniac. I mean, I meditate, I sit, but I don't, I don't do slow walking. Only if I can't sleep, I do slow walking. And you know, the thing is, it's a great pleasure, actually, because when we come into connection with our bodies, there is the capacity for joy. So, um, the, um, this, um, quality that really brings dignity into our lives. Um, let me see. So then, um, just to sort of give a framework, this quality equanimity is actually seen as the culmination of our practice as well as the path of our practice. For those of you who've been in the Dharma for a while, you might already have kind of cottoned on that it is the last factor in the factors of enlightenment that it is the last factor in the ten paramis, and that it is the last factor in the divine abode. So let me just say this, um, to um, name it. It's said in this tradition, for those of you who knew are here, that when the mind opens in a fundamentally transformative way, the moment before the mind opens, there are these seven energies of the heart and mind present. Do you know what they are? Some of you do. What are they? I know some of you know. The seven factors of enlightenment. Hmm? Mindfulness. Yes. Mindfulness. Joy, energy, 
investigation, inquiry, concentration, not gratitude. Gratitude is part of the practice of joy, so yes. Calm and equanimity. So those are the factors that are present in the mind. And in the paramis, because you... um, I know joy is something that the Sangha has inquired and practiced a lot of, um, and that um, um, which is also you, we could include in the paramis. What are the paramis, all the perfections? Generosity. Compassion. Uh, loving kindness is which can be included in compassion. Generosity, ethics, ethical living, renunciation, wisdom, truthfulness, patience, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. And then the divine abodes are loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I'm saying it because in all those practices, Equanimity is the fruition of them because it, it, it is built through the other practices and then gets strong enough that it holds everything without reaction but cannot come to itself without the other practices. So when we think about equanimity, when I think about insomnia or any of the challenges that you might be facing that you would like to call equanimity into being in relationship to, we can't do it without first seeing clearly, being present, being kind, being compassionate, having joy around it, and then finding equanimity. So, for example, the relationship of equanimity to the divine abodes is given as a mother with four children, a young child, a child who is sick, a child who is in the flush and exuberance of youth, and someone who has already left and is very busy. And so it's said that... um, the response of the mother to the young child is to wish them well. And the response of the mother to a child who is sick is to have compassion. And the response of the mother to the child who's that kind of teenage flush with exuberance, I think of the Olympics and some of those mothers there and fathers who are so joyous when their child wins, the mother feels sympathetic joy or happiness at the success of her child. And then the mother feels equanimity to the child who's already gone off and is busy and and hasn't contacted her. Like, this is... This is the nature of, of it when our children leave us and go off into their lives. So that's the relationship of the divine abodes. And, um, and that relationship allows us, those, to go through those steps of first well-wishing, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, 
brings us to equanimity in our relationships. And I, um, for those of you who don't know, I was born in South Africa, and one of my great teachers, when I think about my teachers, apart from uh, Ruth Dennison and Evelyn Eaton, is Bishop Tutu. I have incredible respect for him. And uh, one of the great teachings for me about him has been his capacity to hear all the stories of torture and um, violence that were perpetrated under the apartheid regime in South Africa. And I don't know if you know what they did in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but they went from town to town to town to town and heard the stories of people. And um, I, if have you heard him speak? Because he is incredibly open-hearted and full of joy. And and I think about how is it possible to hold those kind of stories in an ongoing way and to meet the people who've experienced them and to feel the joy that he communicates so beautifully. And he, he says two things. He says that we are all children of God. I take that because I, I don't feel so connected to God. I take that as an expression of the ways he finds to include everyone in the family of life, no matter what they've done. And he says that he does it because he understands that it is impossible for us, each of us, to be a human being without including everyone else in their humanity as a human being. That kind of non-preference is an expression of equanimity. And we each know the incredible blessing of being in the atmosphere or in the space of someone who is like that. And I remember at school, because I was very rebellious, there was, um, and so I used to trigger some of my teachers, um, there was an art teacher who taught without preference for any of her students. She would see what was creative and beautiful in each of the things that we did and supported us and was also able to invite us to look and to learn and no student was more important than another. That inclusion of each of us where personal preference doesn't separate out the community. And just to say that I had a cooking teacher, because we left South Africa and went to England, and I came into the school year in the middle of the year, and there was only one place for me, so that place included cooking classes, which even at that age wasn't my strength. So I had a good friend, Jenny Dickens, who was a great cook. And um, what we used to do is that Jenny would 
give go with her prepared food in line and the teacher would grade it, I would stand right at the end of the line and then she would hand off her things because they were much better than mine. And this teacher had personal preferences and I always got a higher score than Jenny. And partly it was around class because this teacher was more swayed by people who didn't come from poor working class backgrounds. So our personal preferences, just the conditioning, not good, not bad, but the conditioning we have without even being aware of it sways us into a preference. And we know because probably each of us in some way or another have experienced what it's like to be targeted, to be non-preferenced, and also what it's like to be preferenced. And both don't feel good. They both don't feel safe. So equanimity is that capacity to refrain from acting out of personal preference. And what a beautiful gift it is. So... um, one of the amazing experiences, other experiences I've had of non-personal preferences when I met in a teacher's conference with the Dalai Lama. And he left early at the end of the conference, and so all the teachers met in a row, and he walked down the middle of it, and there were some good friends of his that he had known for 30-plus years, like Robert Thurman, and then people like me that he'd never met. And I was sitting at the back of the conference, so probably maybe he saw me, but maybe he didn't. And he was going around, and I don't know if you've seen him, but he would make these very, very deep bows to... um, to um, acknowledge people's presence. And so there was his good friend, Robert Thurman, and he would bring his hands together and bring his head low, 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 you know, almost to Robert Thurman's hips. And then there would be me. And honestly, I expected just a little bow if if there was even going to be a bow because he could just pass on to someone else that he knew. But he brought his hands together and went down in recognition. That's what we are called to when we are called to this practice, to this deep recognition of each of our humanities. So I want to um, then um, share how Thich Nhat Hanh finds his humanity. I know that some of you have heard this. This is um, a letter that he wrote. In Plum Village, where a Thich Nhat Hanh, for those of you who don't know, is a Vietnamese monk. Um, In Plum Village, where I live in France, we receive many letters from the refugee camps in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and the Philippines. 
hundreds each week. It is very painful to read them, but we have to do it. We have to be in contact. We try our best to help, but the suffering is enormous, and sometimes we are discouraged. It is said that half the boat people die in the ocean. Only half arrive at the shores in Southeast Asia, and even then they may not be safe. There are many young girls, boat people, who are raped by sea pirates. Even though the United Nations and many countries try to help the government of Thailand prevent that kind of piracy, sea pirates continue to inflict much suffering on the refugees. One day we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12 and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirates. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it is easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we cannot do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, there is a great likelihood that I would become a pirate. I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day. And if we educators, social workers, politicians and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years a number of them will be sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we may become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and shoot the pirate, all of us are to some extent responsible for the state of affairs. After a long meditation, I wrote this poem. In it, there are three people, the 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognize ourselves in each other? The tide of the poem is, please call me by my true names, because I have so many names. When I hear one of these names, I have to say yes. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh, and to cry in order to fear and to hope. 
The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I am also the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain, if like a river of tears, so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Like um, seems like a lot. I feel like oh, that's a lot, and um, I could go on, but I would, <laughs> I would like to um. Well, let me check in with you. Should we end here and move into a sharing or? Sh- it's um, coming on for ten past. Or do you feel ready for sharing? Or would you like me to continue? I can continue a little bit longer. Continue, okay. So um, I want to acknowledge that this kind of opening happens when we have the courage to feel our feelings to feel our grief and our despair, our joy and um, our love. And um, I was watch. I love the Olympics. I was watching the Olympics the other day. And I don't know if any of you noticed the male gymnast team. There was a young Cuban man who, um, who was part of it. And he had performed really beautifully on the trials along with most of the other team members and had made a couple of really horrible mistakes um, so that the the team 
fell from first place to like seventh or something. They just lost some very big scores. And you could see him sitting on the chair, struggling not to cry. And I was like, why? Why is it not okay to cry? I can only imagine the hours and hours and hours and hours that these young men put into getting to the Olympics and the profound disappointment in losing it. And yet it wasn't okay to cry. And it was such a symbol to me of the ways our culture doesn't allow us to feel what we're feeling. And I was just talking to a student today who is an executive director of a Dharma center. And the guiding teacher had come to her and had expressed some frustration to her. And she had felt bad. She had felt bad about it. And our whole conversation, an hour of it really, was to let it be okay that she felt bad, that she felt that it triggered some of her own feelings of inadequacy, that she wasn't good enough, that she didn't do the job as well as she as as that this teacher had wanted her to. That does it sound familiar? And that it wasn't okay for her to feel the feelings that she was feeling, and partly because we have a spiritual practice and the ways that we understand equanimity is that we want to shortchange the process and get to equanimity without actually going through the journey of feeling the feelings that we feel. It takes great courage, actually, to even be vulnerable to ourselves and to feel our own feelings, let alone to be vulnerable and to share them with each other. That's just the nature of it. This path of equanimity is a path that actually asks us to be where we are and to bow down to it. It is in that relationship that there is a healing. I am sure if that young man had cried and there had been someone who had given her or his shoulder to him, the healing would have happened much more quickly. So this path is about allowing ourselves to feel what we're feeling And to say that in a culture that is structured to not recognize our dignity and our humanity often, it is a radical act to allow ourselves to feel our humanity in the ways that we do. So that is the contribution to that. And then maybe to say, that's it. There's more maybe next time I come, I want to go to the 
the, uh, can talk about the, what's called the near enemy of equanimity, which is indifference, and the ways that plays out inside of ourselves and our relationships and in our community. But that feels enough. So let's um, take a moment. Take a moment to feel that heart's capacity to open in neutrality or non-preference. It could be one aspect of your life to open to it. Just acknowledging that. And then if you would to acknowledge one place that is in resistance, that is being defended, and see if it's possible to allow this too. Equanimity can open to this as well. I am a human being learning on this path and I bow down to the places that are open and the places that are not. Thank you. What I'd like to invite you to do, if you'd be willing to, is to partner up with someone and take a few moments to share just how you are in this moment, how equanimity lives inside of you, and what its obstacles are. So just, uh, you know, four minutes each. If you can do it with someone that you don't know, might be just nicer. Um, So turn to someone, introduce yourself. Uh, One person is a witness and just listens, and one person will share. I'll ring the bell after four minutes, and then you can switch. Does everyone have a partner? You can have a threesome as well. So coming to closure. Thank you for that. So how was that? It was good. Excellent. Was anything, a a new learning? Did some kind of learning come out of it? Could you share that? Oh, oh, where is the, um, oh, great. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. It's pretty simple. I was listening to Sue tell her story, and she was saying what a hard time she was having with some friends camping, and um, I hope it's all right that I'm sharing that. And she said, yeah. (laughs) 
And she said, you know, I finally got to just, you know, doing meta. And, you know, and it really kind of started to shift. And it's like, God, what a great thing. You know, I said, how fabulous you thought of that, to do that. I mean, I, you know, when I get stuck, like what she was describing, it's like, that isn't what comes to my mind. You know, I just feel the suffering. It's like, oh, accept the suffering, accept the suffering. But, you know, how about that one step further and, and start sending, you know, loving kindness to myself and just the thought of compassion, just the thought of it. What a wonderful mm. path to start on, mm. you know, whether how far I go on it. Mm, thank you. Thank you for being moved. Thank you for your sharing and practice. It's beautiful. Do you have any questions? Did any questions come up about anything I said or anything that came up in your sharing? Did it make sense? Yeah. Yes. I would like to hear you uh, talk a little about the tension between um, equanimity and and you know injustice, um, equanimity and huh, evil isn't exactly a Buddhist word, I guess, but but bad things um, because clearly there are you know. There are th- things that uh, you know. Mudita, the parents in the in the Olympics, are part of their excitement is because of the attachment that they've got to their kid, an attachment that their kid or the desire along it their kid has for um, to excel. Mm-hmm. And so there's something that's that's really human and alive, and and I think is appropriate to treasure about. You know all these these reaching for things, and there's something that's also very human and appropriate and almost demanded of us to be outraged at injustice. And how does equanimity fit in that space? I, I when I um, am moved by the great beings. What I find in my own heart is a capacity to allow the injustice in a way in which I feel connected, just like the Thich Nhat Hanh poem, and therefore active. That outrage often disconnects us. And when we're disconnected and not in relationship, we're at our least empowered. So the why equanimity is considered a fruition is because it holds love through and in ignorance, the ignorance of injustice. So um, I was going to talk about... um, the recent killing that happened in Colorado. And I was going to mention, but now I am mentioning, <laughs> that um, in the recent Newsweek, they quoted that the Secret Service had done um, an exhaustive 
investigation into 26 of the killers of these mass killings that have happened in the last 30 years. All of them have been male. And um, 99% of them had said that right before their planning or their, the killing, they had experienced a profound disappointment or failure. And I'm just saying that as the conditions and grounds for how we stay connected to something that seems impossible to connect to, we stay connected because even they experienced the kinds of disappointments and failures that we have and didn't have the blessings of the strength to hold them. And that the violence is an expression of our social incapacity not individual incapacity, but the way this culture or cultures are structured that don't allow us to open to and hold the great failures and losses of being a human being. And when that gets distorted, it gets distorted into a rage. So I had written down here this... um, This was the guy... I'll just say this and then end because it's 9.30. I wanted to... um, Because I feel so... I felt so um, really moved by... um, um, uh, uh, It was Harris. Do you remember it was Harris who was part of the Columbine killings? And he'd written in his diary, you know what I hate? The WB network. I don't know what that is because I don't have a TV. The WB network. Mother Mary of God Almighty, I hate that channel with all my heart and soul and I have a goal to destroy as much as possible. This is a 16-year-old. And I think of the rage that I had when um, I was having a really bad fight with my partner in my 20s. And there was a moment, I don't usually talk about this, but there was a moment we had gotten out of the car because we were screaming at each other when in my rage I hit her. And it wasn't like... It wasn't a very... She was stronger than me, luckily. Um, it wasn't... It wasn't... It didn't bruise. It wasn't that bad a hit. But that movement to hurt, because I was hurting so much but not able to connect with it and hold it, is just... It is the same energy that lives in people who perpetrate injustice, what we call injustice, to say that 
when I can find that in my own heart, I find their hearts. When I find their hearts, I establish a relationship in which I can be skillful. So I want to say just one more thing. As a white woman, I... I've been living here in Oakland for a number of years. Why well, I don't live here, I live in San Francisco, but I spend a lot of time here, and I did live here. And it took me a while to acknowledge my indifference to the killing of so many people of color youth by the police. And in exploring my white privilege with, caring and kindness, I saw that my comfort as a white woman enabled me not to open to that particular suffering. And as I have opened, so I've become more active in addressing um, police violence. Just to say that we cannot be Activists, unless we're in relationship, they are synonymous. To be in relationship means to live with an open heart. To live with an open heart means to commit to a spiritual, social, political practice. Or on all levels, that's what it's just saying. An open heart on the individual level, on the interpersonal, social, and cultural. Because... If we leave one out, it means that there is a place that is unexplored and distorted. So that's a whole nother Dharma talk. Let me end by expressing my appreciation to you for your presence, for your practice, and for your listening. I'd like to share the merit of our open-heartedness, of the safety of coming together, of listening and learning with all beings everywhere. May our efforts contribute to a world of safety, equity, listening and learning. I'd also like to mention that, um, to add to what's being said, that my all my finances come from Dana. Your Dana supports my rent and um, paying for food. I don't do anything else but teach. So there's a deep giving and taking in our relationship. I wanted to acknowledge that and say thank you for the sustenance that you can share with me. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.